Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we welcome those who are our guests as well, and uh, even online. We're just so glad to be directing our attention and our praise to Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles, please, this morning with me on this Palm Sunday to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. It's good to have Pastor Michael's uh, parents and brothers and having this family in town, and I guess they eat quite a bit, I've heard, and uh, they're still going to let them stay for a little while longer, but it's great to have you all with us, and I hope that our church family will be able to greet you as well as our other guests uh, today. Palm Sunday. We're here already. (laughs) We're into the spring, and as we crest into this week that is so special to all of us, we call it the Passion Week, and it consummates with our communion service on Good Friday this weekend at 7, and then, of course, our, our, our exaltation a week from today in what we call Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection. As Pastor Michael mentioned, we celebrate the resurrection every day and every week on the Lord's Day, but it's just something special in all of our hearts when we come to this Easter week, this Passion Week, and it brings to me personally a lot of memories of my childhood and even early parenting years in my life. This week is just marked with a few memories and images in my mind. Of course, I would always rejoice as a, as a child and as a teenager that we were having some days off of school, usually this week. That was always time to rejoice. Uh, when I was growing up, we would all, my mom and dad and I would go to Florida every year during this week. We would fly down there. We had a little place to stay down there, and that was one of our two vacations every year. Florida, especially flying from Michigan. I also have memories of always getting a new suit with a clip-on tie as a kid. Clip-on ties are actually a good concept the older I get. Um, But I always remember with my new suit, I got a new pair of leather or patent white shoes with that, white dress shoes. Remember those? I always remember it, of course, Easter egg hunts or going out after Easter dinner or after Easter service for Easter brunch. And uh, no matter how excited I may or may not have been as a teenager to go to church, there was even something during Easter in my life that just drew me into the excitement of Easter Sunday church. It's just kind of a week that built with these great memories in my mind. But we know, as we gather this morning on Palm Sunday, we know that this week is not about the sentimental. It's not about the sentimental, it's actually about the monumental. The monumental truths that we celebrate, that we remember about this week. It's about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ which Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is of utmost importance. That's the gospel. That's our message. And Paul says, you believed this, I preached this, and you stand in it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection of Christ is our anchor, not just at the end of this special week. It's our anchor all year long. And it's especially an anchor to those who call on the name of the Lord, to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. It is the anchor, the resurrection of Christ. It is the anchor that we 
know holds us fast, especially as we go into seasons and chapters of persecution. And I'm not just talking about someone was mean to you in the parking lot at Ikea, which happened to me yesterday. Um, I didn't want to go to Ikea anyway. My daughter needed to go and son-in-law. But uh, it was Saturday. It's a violent location. You are easily offended in the parking lot. And yeah, all that. I'm, I'm back to my sermon now. I, I got, I'm working through this. I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I'm talking about you identifying with Jesus Christ as his disciple. You identifying as a child of God who holds this book and everything it says, even right to the first two chapters of creation and the creative order. Because you believe that, because you identify with that, I'm talking about that persecution that comes your direction, which is only going to intensify. We're not still talking like it's coming. It's here now. It's here. In the West. In Southeast Michigan. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe who've been persecuting, being persecuted for a long time now. And I just want to say, wherever you are in the globe, identifying as a child of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, when the heat of persecution turns up, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of your future resurrection because of his. That is your anchor. That's what holds you fast. And in God's providence, we find ourselves on Palm Sunday in 1 Peter chapter 1 again. Coming back to verses 3 through 9. And even in these first nine verses of this chapter, verses 1 through 9, Peter himself is emphasizing the shed blood of Jesus, which we're going to commemorate this Friday in our communion service. And he's also emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as we will see. These are the themes we need going into this Passion Week. Just by way of review, verses 1 through 2, Peter is teaching us how to suffer well because of who you are. We looked at that last time. We were in part one of this sermon two weeks ago. And then, or three weeks ago, then two weeks ago in verses 3 through 9, we started into this message that we are to suffer well because of what we have. What we have as God's children is what holds us fast in persecution. And we have discovered that verses 3 through 9, Peter is giving to us three realities that will anchor us in our suffering. It's what we have, three realities. And we saw in our last time together, uh, the first point, just by way of review, what holds you fast in your suffering, in your persecution? It's the fact that God himself initiated your salvation. You didn't get smarter than your neighbor and figure it out before them and respond to it because you're really something special and you are really something advanced. You could see it when others couldn't, other family members. No, not at all. You were dead, you were lifeless, and God is the one who initiated your salvation. We see that in verse 3, remember? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
The Father himself, God himself, initiated your salvation. You say, what do you mean? Well, this verse tells us that he, the Father, is a saving God. He's called here God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those titles of the Father, as they relate to Jesus Christ, are actually ascribing to Jesus not only full humanity, this is his God, but full deity, he is the Father. And the Son, of course, is the second person of the Trinity. The saving Father, look at it this way, the saving Father is the one who sent the saving Son. The language that Peter uses in verse 3 is your Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he's putting all the names out there, all the titles. He is Lord. We don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. We accept that when we recognize that. He's worthy to be obeyed. He is Lord. Jesus, that name means he is Savior. He's the one who saves us from our sin. As John the Baptist said, there's the Lamb of God right there pointing at Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a Savior. But he's not only the Lord and he's not only the the Savior, Jesus, but he's Messiah, the promised one. Christ, Christos. He's the one that was prophesied way back immediately on the heels of the fall of Adam and Eve. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we see and hear time and time again that the one is coming who's going to fix the problem of sin and the fall. The Lord Jesus Christ. So we see in verse 3, he is a saving God who initiated your salvation. But we also saw that he is a merciful God. It says in verse 3, he did this. He sent Christ. According to his great mercy. It's his mercy that not only sends, but accomplishes the rest of verse 3. Right in the middle of verse 3 is the whole motive. He's a merciful God. What does it mean for God to have mercy? It means that he shows his kindness. He initiates his kindness to outsiders to make them insiders. He's merciful. He moves towards those who have spurned his holiness. And his right to reign. He's a saving God, we saw. He's a merciful God, we saw. He said, well, how do I know he's merciful? How did he demonstrate it? We'll continue to read. It says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You say, how do I know he's merciful? The answer is because he's the one that caused you to be born again. You didn't choose the day of your birth physically and spiritually. It's something that happened to you. And it's the same spiritually. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Or James, the little brother of our Lord, says in James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Your new birth points to a new identity, a new citizenship, a new name, new resources, a new inheritance, new potential, new character, new awareness, new affections. He's a saving God. He's a merciful God that has given you a living hope. It's alive. But thirdly, we saw that he is a satisfied God. Someone had to die for the sin of those who would believe. And that was Jesus. Wrath had to be fully expressed and fully absorbed 
for sin. You say, well, how do I know the father accepted the sacrifice of the son? Because he, he brought him back from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's a satisfied God. Even Jesus himself says, I lay my life down, I take it up again. Our hope is in a living person that satisfied the Father. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. I mean, this this is awesome. This is eternal life. This is the reminder that no matter what is heating up around us in our culture, that will seek us out to pursue us and persecute us. You can't touch this. You can't touch that God himself initiated this salvation. You say, well, man, I'm getting crushed. And on the left hand and on the right hand on social media, we are getting canceled if we identify with Jesus. This journey is kind of difficult, but everything seems to be changing right now. Are you sure that this salvation is going to be there for me? I mean, is this deal really going to hold as times get difficult? And the answer is absolutely. Why? Because the second reality here for your suffering is this. Not only that God himself initiated your salvation, but number two, God himself protects your salvation. It's not on you. Like John MacArthur says, if we could lose our salvation, we all would. It's God who is standing guard. Every once in a while you need to step back from how busy you are or how worried you are, how distracted you are, how angry you are. And just marvel at the fact that God himself is standing guard over your salvation. I remember when we lived in Virginia Beach, um, we weren't too far from the base called Little Creek. Actually, we did a quick trip there for... A uh, little speaking engagement last two weeks ago, and we flew right over Little Creek as we were getting to land in Norfolk. You say, what's, what's the Little Creek base? That's where all but, all but one even-numbered SEAL teams are located. They're just right there. You fly right over them when you fly into Norfolk. You say, have you been on base at Little Creek? I, I have. I've been able to get on base a, a couple of times. And uh, I was really surprised I was able to because the first time I got on base, I got on with my son, and it was around 2007. I mean, we were hot and heavy into the, the Iraqi war, into the war in the Middle East there. And, and tensions were high and vigilance was, uh, was on high alert, not just overseas, but here with our bases. But even so, every July, Little Creek hosts what's called the SEAL Team Reunions. And they invite the SEAL teams, not only the even-numbered ones from the West Coast that are not deployed, but... Uh, from the East Coast that are not deployed, but they invite the West Coast odd number SEAL teams from San Diego to come to this reunion. And it's not just current SEALs, it's retired SEALs. And so you have SEALs of all ages there. Um, Some haven't obviously been a SEAL in a long time, and you can tell, and others are just not deployed right now, but they're active duty. And if you happen to know someone who does work for that base, either either in the military or for the military, 
they can get you an invite to the seal reunion as a spectator. And so you're, they set up bleaches around the, along the beach and they demonstrate a sniper um, operation from a guy buried in the sand that has been there all morning. You don't know where he is. They demonstrate seals coming down from the sky from uh, helicopters. They, they demonstrate seals coming in from the swift boats um, and even coming in by land. It's, just a, it's a demonstration and a celebration of the power of the Navy SEALs. I'll never forget, we got an invite because we knew someone. And they invited, would you like to come? Yeah. So we drove in and we had to, we had to have our, identi- our identification ready and, and our name had to be on a list. And when we got to the gate, all these armed people were coming out. And they're looking at your car, dogs are sniffing it, mirrors going around, there's guns falling off them, there's so many of them, you know. I'm just in my Honda Accord, man, back then. If I did that in Detroit, they would have shot me. <laughs> okay, but uh, I had a Honda Accord there and no one seemed to care. And, uh, and we get on the base, and as you get out and you park your car and you're walking towards the waterfront and the bleachers, I mean, there's just armed people everywhere. Everyone's at a high alert, even though they're having a celebration. Now, I want to tell you something. I wasn't afraid of what I was seeing. I was thankful for it. Because for those few hours, I was on that base watching the demonstration and, 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 and getting to look around and, and experiment with some things. I, uh, I knew I was in the safest place in Hampton Roads for those few hours. I mean, if you're a bad guy, you don't want to be where I am right now. That would be over fast. And I just felt safe, and my son felt safe. And we watched the demonstration. We bought a couple T-shirts and a hat and had a great time because we were just secure. Now, that's in Virginia Beach on a hot day every July. But let me tell you something. When it comes to your salvation, if you've come to Christ and you've placed your faith in him as your Savior and as your Lord, you've confessed your sin, and you're walking in obedience with him as a result... Can I tell you how safe you are? You might not see guards and rifles and mirrors and and sniper lofts. But I promise you, you're even more safe than if you could. God himself protects your salvation. Look at verse 4. The end of verse 3. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. To obtain... Or literally, to an inheritance, which is, and listen to this description, it's imperishable and undefiled, it will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. I want you just to look at verse 4. I want you to listen to the description of your salvation right now. Right now, this morning, this is your salvation in heaven. I want you to listen to the description of it. He pulls out three words here. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it will not fade away. So what does that mean? Well, you know what it means? I looked this up. It means, first of all, it's imperishable. If it's in existence, if your salvation has been enacted by the initiative and the mercy of God... If you've been born again, it will never not exist. It's imperishable. You say, what's the second word? It's undefiled. You say, what does that mean? It's undefiled. There's nothing wrong in it. This speaks of its purity. 
And then that third phrase captures me too. It says it, it will not fade away. It's unfadeable. There are some commentators that have had some fun just helping us see the depth of the footing of these three words. For imperishable, one commentator says, this means untouched by death. Even if your persecution kills you, as it would Peter, this wave of persecution, even if it kills you, your inheritance is still waiting for you. It's untouched by death. And this commentator says, not only is it untouched by death, but he looked at that word undefiled. He says, it's untainted by evil. I don't know, maybe you get discouraged too as you read the news, watch the news, listen to the headlines, listen to the discussion in line at, at Meyer. And you're like, everything's just wrong, man. We're looking at men and saying, you're a woman, at woman, you're a man, and we're striking out at the Creator. We love those people. They're image bearers of God. We're burdened for them. But there's just a confusion now, and it's like, and they, people really believe it. This is wrong. And then if I say anything, I get in trouble. It's like someone's house is on fire and you're told you can't tell them it's on fire. This is wrong. We can go point by point through our culture of what's wrong, what's tainted. But when you think of your salvation, there's nothing wrong with it. And everything that's wrong now and right here, when we are in heaven, everything's made wrong. And then this commentator says, um, for the word unfadeable, he says it's not only untouched by death and untainted by evil, but it's unimpaired by time. Unimpaired by time. This is a word that was used to describe flowers that are indeed beautiful in the moment, but by the end of the week, they're, they're wilted. They're not your salvation. Another commentator puts it this way. He uses the threefold description this way. It's death-proof, it's sin-proof, and it's time-proof. Not only when you get there to enjoy it after this life, it will never end. It will forever be pure. And it will never not be there. These are three amazing words of description. It speaks of the immortality, the purity, and the beauty of your salvation. Just listen to the description of what you have. And it uses this word inheritance, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. These three words are describing this inheritance. And, and you say, what about an inheritance? An inheritance is something that, that is rightfully yours. And you say, how secure is it? Well, if those three words aren't enough, Paul's going to use the concept of inheritance in the same way Peter is, and he's going to use these words to describe it. He says, talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about salvation in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is given, listen, as a pledge of our inheritance, a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You say, well, those three words are cool. Yeah, I get that. 
in describing my inheritance, my salvation, but how do I know it will be there when I get there? Because God has put a seal, a down payment on it. You say, well, what did he pay? He put himself there. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is sealing that, reserved for you. As a matter of fact, he uses that word. Look at verse 4 again. Obtain, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. And look at this next word, reserved. Reserved where? In heaven. Not Ypsilanti. Reserved in heaven. That word reserved, tereo, is in the perfect tense. It's just saying like, like it's not a, just a concept and an idea right now. And he'll get around to making it a reality when you need it. He's like, no, when you are God's child by faith. You've been born again. That inheritance exists. It exists right now. And it's waiting for you. Paul put it this way in Galatians 5.5. We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of this righteousness. I mean, it, it exists right now. So like this morning... As I was uh, just going through this passage again and put it in my heart again, I had, every once in a while, I have to take a mental break. That means go get more coffee upstairs. I went upstairs, came back, and as I was situating, I remembered something that happened yesterday. I was working on my sink, sink, um, uh, what is that thing called? Or just a stopper, yeah, stopper, the technical phrase, stopper. My sink stopper, something broke in it, and it just plopped all the way down so it won't drain water. And so I got, you know, I'm a guy, I'm a pretty handy guy. I am. And, and I have tools at the ready. And I needed to get that stopper out, and so I got my fingernail clippers <laughs> right there by the sink, right? And I got that little nail file folded out, and I was trying to, to pick that out, and the thing's closing on my finger, which is making the whole moment even much more memorable now. And I'm, it's in the water, the water's down here, and I... And I'm doing this, and that's such, I have such a cheap pair of nail, nail clippers that by this morning there was rust <laughs> from that. And by the way, they didn't work. I had to get my Leatherman out after all. And I remember all that this morning during my mental break for my coffee. And as I sat back down before I got back into the notes, I went to Amazon.com. And I ordered me the best nail clipper I could find so I don't have to buy any other nail clipper the rest of my life. Wouldn't you know the best nail clipper you can find? It's made by a knife company. It's a Swiss Army nail clipper. I didn't have one, so I had to order it. $14. And it's the last one I plan on buying in this life. And, uh, and I immediately got a receipt saying, yeah, we have it in stock. You'll have it tomorrow. It's quite a promise, right? And, and, and they hit my credit card, of course, when I placed the order because they sent me that receipt. So it's already been paid for. It'll happen that the Amazon van drives by my house tomorrow and drops it on the front porch. But I do say right now with full confidence, based on what Amazon said, even though I don't have it yet, it'll be on my porch tomorrow. I own it. It's just still at the warehouse. It exists. I didn't order it and someone said, oh, we've got to get busy building that. No, there's one that was in existence, right? And now it has Jim Newcomer's name on it say is it yours it's mine right now I have paid for it it's just not here yet 
I'm so excited to get a nail clipper. Never been more excited in my life. And you have your thing that you get excited about from Amazon. I want to tell you something. As people who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, that the Spirit has opened your eyes to see your sin and your Savior and the free gift of eternal life, you, you understand you can't see heaven right now. You can't even see Jesus right now, but he's, Peter's going to talk about that in a moment. But it's just as much yours, what you can't see, as the day you will enjoy it. Do you understand that we sing songs like this about a salvation we haven't experienced yet, that we can't see and touch? I mean, we know we've, we've been given new life, and we know that the grace of God is at work in our lives, and things have changed radically. That's evidence that we own eternal life now, but what we're going to enjoy for eternity, we haven't seen it yet. But watch this. The more we read the descriptions of it, from the one who can see it and who's prepared it for us, the more we spend time praying to the one who lives there, the more we sing praises like this, the better we can talk about it. And you might spend your whole life reading and praying and singing, and you still just can't put the exact nouns and verbs of description out there because it's beyond description what we're going to enjoy. And that's what he's going to say here. Look at verse 5. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? We're still talking about that. Drop down to the end of verse 8. You embrace and enjoy the reality and the existence of your salvation even right now. The eternity, the eternity you're going to spend with God. How do I hold that? It says at the end of verse 8, with joy that's just inexpressible. You can't, you can't put nouns and verbs appropriate to it to fully explain how good this is. But one day, you and I will realize how secure our salvation was in this life. That God himself was guarding it. John uses language similar to this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now, now, right now, we are children of God, but it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. We know we're children now, but we don't have the whole picture yet of the reality of what we enjoy now. But we know this, that when he appears, we're going to be like him because we will see him just as he is. So I, I want you this morning to understand that God himself protects your salvation. Just listen to the description of your salvation. But don't just listen. I also want you right now to look at the guardian of your salvation. Again, I want to take you back to verse 5. It says, it's re- end of verse 4, it's reserved in heaven for you, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just look at the guardian of your salvation. Did you notice the words? There's a, there, there's a, a, a word um, that I explained earlier, tereo, at the end of verse 4. It's reserved in heaven for you. This means it's, 
It's, it exists, and it's being watched over. Nothing will happen to it. But then when he starts verse 5, he's talking about you. Verse 4 is your inheritance, eternal life, and all that it will entail. But then he comes back to earth in verse 5, and he says, I want to talk about you. It says, you are, and this is a different word than kept up in verse 4. It's you are protected by the power of God. The Wycliffe commentary says, the kept inheritance is for you, the kept. Down here in verse 5, you have a military term that is, it could even talk about um, holding in custody. What, what Peter is doing here, though I think on a human level he could have used the same word at the end of verse 4 and 5, he's wanting to stack words that are synony- almost synonymous with how secure your salvation is, verse 4, and how secure you are in this life until the two of you get together, you and your inheritance. That's why I like that Wycliffe quote, the kept inheritance is for you, the kept And it says you're kept by who? The power of God. Okay, so all those decades that you had Calvary Christian Academy here, you had parking lots that would get a lot of snow in February. And if your Christian school is like my Christian school that I grew up in, first of all in Warren and then up in Clarkston, we loved recess in February. Because the snow plows come and they push all the snow to the side of the of the, uh, of the parking lots, and why? Why To make room for the, the parents and the cars and all that. But what does it create for us at recess? Mountains of snow. And what did we always play on the mountains of snow at recess? Without mouth guards, pads, and helmets. King of the hill. And every once in a while, we could get that girl off the top of the mountain. There was always that one girl that was like, you know what, we're going to go play kickball. <laughs> but... Uh, we, we, you just, you just race to the top and you push each other off and you roll down in the snow laughing and it's just as fun playing King of the Hill. But it wouldn't be fun if I went downtown and I got the tight end from the Detroit Lions and said, I need you to be my body double at recess today. Word has it there's a game of King of the Mountain coming and I need you to be Jim up there. That wouldn't even be fair. Not at all. It's like verse 5 is not even fair. Who can broach God himself, let alone his power, to get to you? Just look at the guardian of your salvation. And by the way, the word translated kept in verse 4, and the, referring to your inheritance, and the word uh, protect that refers to you in verse 5, The very fact that Peter has to use that word means what? It means many will try. It means that your faith will be assailed. The use of these two words assumes the attacks are going to come. Attacks from outside of you, which is what Peter's going to write about, but also attacks from inside, your own failures. You say, God keeps my salvation safe when I'm being persecuted, yes, but he also keeps your salvation faith when you drop your guard and when you fail and struggle. God protects you from you. Hmm. 
You say, well, it says in verse 5, it says that who are protected by the power of God, that's God's part. Through faith, that's my part. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And you would be accurate, but you just need to remember that even the faith that is your part is a gift from God to you. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Or Philippians 1.29, it's been granted unto you to believe. So God gets to glory either way. God himself protects, guards your salvation. You say, well, man, I got, there's a couple important Greek words there, and that's some, those are some neat theological truths to stack up on each other. It's good to know this. But how do I, how do I know it's that secure? I mean, I know, I know it is secure. It's described as secure by God himself. But is there any way I could see it surviving such an attack? And that brings us to the third point. Not only does God himself initiate your salvation and God himself protects your salvation, but number three, God himself proves your salvation. He proves your salvation. Talking about school parking lots in Michigan, you know, I... In 1984, somehow my family got access to an 84 Mustang, the year it came out. And for some unknown reason, I was able to drive it to school often. I loved driving that. It was a navy blue 1984 Ford Mustang. Compared to all the other automobiles today, it looks so boring if you look at old pictures. But man, I love that thing. You know, it had a cassette player. Yeah. I used to jam to the king's grass, <laughs> driving down the road. It was a great car. I loved the car. Um, it was only two-door, but it worked for me. Loved it. But, you know, long before I got a copy of the 84 Mustang in our family, Ford had been doing a lot of testing on that 84 Mustang in the years preceding that. And a car that I treasured and really appreciated and enjoyed for several years, even down to college, um, that car was being just destroyed on purpose in the Ford testing facilities. It was being pushed to the limit. It was being crushed in crashes with dummies in it. And you say, that's just awful. Man, if I would have seen, I would have been so depressed because I love that car. But when I realized what Ford was doing with it, I'd say, wreck it again. You are testing it to make sure I stay safe when I'm driving it. And what would be initially a bummer turns out to be a blessing. It's the same thing with your salvation. God tests your salvation to prove that you're safe. To prove to you you're safe. You say, what do you mean? Listen to Peter. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In all this stuff of salvation we've, we've been talking about. In verses 1 through 5. In this you greatly rejoice. That's one word in the Greek. Just exploding with more than just a little happy. I mean, you are exuberant and explosive with your joy. In this salvation you greatly rejoice. And we say, yes, let's sing another song. But verse 6 keeps going. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You've been distressed by various trials. He's not talking about hangnails. He's not talking about inconveniences in your life. He's not talking about hangnails. He's talking about hangings, if I may put it that way. You are being persecuted on every level, even some to the point of death. That's what we're talking about. Not a bad day and I'm a little tired stuff. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, that he just mentioned in verse 5, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Same Greek word, just exuberant. And if that weren't enough, he adds, and full of joy. Hmm. He say, keep going. He says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, and there's that word faith again, five, seven, and nine, the salvation of your souls, your whole person. What are we learning here? I would just like, as we close out, to tell you with a pastoral warmth that even personally, sometimes I can struggle with this. I don't like hurting. I don't like to be rejected, especially by a world and a culture I care about. But as I look here, as God is proving his salvation, I see six sticky notes to myself I need to write. Whenever this persecution gets near and dear in my life, six sticky notes when the heat is on. First one, trials are limited to this life. Persecution, suffering is limited to this life. It says, did you see what Peter said? Even now... For a little while. Even now for a little while. There's a limit to how long we're going to have to be rejected because we're Christ followers. It's this life. It's limited to this life. How many of you have been on a walk before? Walking through the neighborhoods. And you look up, you you thought you heard something, and you, you hear a galloping as a matter of fact. And it's a big German shepherd running across that guy's backyard right towards you. Hair up on the back, growling, barking, all that. Only to watch, as you're terrified, you watch that dog suddenly stop right before the sidewalk and just look at you. What just happened? What just happened is you're praising the Lord for that owner. Because at some time in the past, he's put his invisible fence wire under the ground. And it's then that you notice the German shepherd has the collar on there and he doesn't want to get zapped. That shepherd is real. Just stick your arm over the sidewalk, if you doubt that. It's real. You go in that yard, it's going to get bad. But he can't come any farther than the limits of his master. Suffering for the cause of Christ, being rejected, is real. And it hurts. And Peter even uses the word, you are distressed. But understand... It's necessary right now 
just for a little while. And he says, what's necessary? He says here in the text, various tests. That's an interesting word, various. It, it, it means diversified, um, multicolored, different kinds of tests. This is the word from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 for test. It's trials, paresmas. It's, it's going through a test to see what's left. And they're going to come in all different shapes and sizes and at different times. You say, well, you know, I just, if I'm going to suffer for my faith, that's probably going to be the people from a political party or Hollywood descending on me with picket signs and this and that and, and canceling me online. That's it, right? Is that what we're talking about here? No, I mean, I think Peter's wanting them, his original readers, and us to start at our closest relationships first and work our way out. Sometimes it'll be your spouse or a family member. Peter's going to write about this in chapter 3. Sometimes as you work your way out from the center of the circle, the rejection will come from your immediate community. Sometimes it will come from government. And Peter's going to write about all of these in these five chapters. It's going to come from all different directions. And the types of suffering will be physical sometimes, but not always. Sometimes it'll be a political suffering. Sometimes it'll be a technological suffering. Sometimes it will be a social suffering, a mental suffering, an emotional suffering, an economic suffering, even a legal suffering. But it's coming. It's here, Peter's saying. And it's in all different shapes and sizes. And, it, and it's for right now, for a little while. But I love what John Bunyan, a man who knew about rejection and suffering for the sake of the gospel. John Bunyan just said, oh, suffering? Yeah, I wear it like jewelry. These are his words. Quote, Therefore, I bind these lies and slanderous accusations to my person as an ornament. It belongs to my Christian profession to be vilified, slandered, reproached, and reviled, since all this is nothing but that, as God and my conscience testify, I rejoice in being reproached for Christ's sake. End quote. <laughs> Probably written from a jail cell. A powerful preacher today, Vodi Bakum, has this to say about suffering to our generation in our day. He says this, quote, Suffering is common for all Christians. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided for Christians. All you have to do is compromise. That's right. Maybe that's why Peter's going to use this language in chapter 5, verse 10. After you've suffered for a little while, there it is again, it's limited to this life. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You say, that sounds like verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. Mm-hmm. That's how he ends, too. That's the first sticky note. The second sticky note is this. Trials are never arbitrary. 
They're never arbitrary. Peter uses these words, if necessary, right in the middle of verse 6. These trials are necessary. Listen, let me tell you something about God. God never uses recycling. I'm, I'm sorry, God always uses recycling. Never waste. He is careful, and in his good hand of providence, and his, his sovereign work, he uses our suffering to make us more conformed to his image. We see that in James 1. We see that in 2 Peter 1. We see it in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. We see it in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. We see it in Romans chapter 5. He had enough. As a matter of fact, we can tell on the authority of Scripture that until we suffer, especially because we identify as Christians, until we suffer, we can't grow as a Christian. We can't grow in the depth of love and faith and joy that God has in store for us unless we suffer. Trials are never arbitrary. Third sticky note, trials prove faith's indestructibility. Get that? Trials prove faith's indestructibility. He says here in this verse, he says it's going to be tested as by fire, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. I think John MacArthur's right in his little study Bible note that you have on your lap, some of you. This testing we're talking about in this verse is not for God to see if your faith is real. He knows it is. He gave it to you. This testing is for you to see how steadfast the faith is that he gave to you. And you won't see that until it's tested. Gold is the most precious metal. If you have a piece of gold jewelry on now, I promise you it's going to outlive you. It'll outlive generations. But if you can ever find that day when gold rusts, and goes away on its own. You say, see, man, that, that's a long time, but it's only a chalk mark compared to how permanent and safe the faith is that God's given to you to believe. F trials prove faith's indestructibility. You say, well, I've been through some hard times, and I've really complained to God. I don't know. And I say, the fact that you knew to complain to God is an expression of faith. He's there to be complained to. These are the psalms of lament. It's a good thing. He that comes to God, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, must believe that he is. I like what Warren Wearsby said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. He's right. A fourth sticky note. Trials are preludes to worship. Trials are preludes to worship. You say, what do you mean? Well, it says here, the result, at the end of verse 7, found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine these believers that suffer then and are suffering around the world today and it's descending on us here in the West now and it's an incessant rejection. It's an incessant pain. When the day comes when we do see Jesus, how our hearts in that moment of finally freedom and power and glory because of his mercy to us. What praise we will render to him in those opening moments. 
This is a prelude to worship. I have friends in the ministry. And some of their most intense suffering for their faith. I mean, it's, I gasp when they tell me their stories, even to this very week. Some of the most intense rejection that they face for the gospel comes from their own children. Adult children. I can use names like Brent and Rod and Dean and Ross and Jay and Steve and Rob. And I even marvel at what they go through because they identify with Jesus, even from their own families. I, I just marvel at them. But I promise you, their voice will be louder than mine in that day when finally they are in the presence of Jesus, free. Two more sticky notes and we must finish. The fifth sticky note, trials open your eyes to Jesus. They really do. Trials open your eyes to Jesus. Look at verse, uh, the end of verse 7, the honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, if you think about it, verse 8 is a fascinating verse to come from, of all people, Peter. Right? Because Peter had kind of seen Jesus a lot. Had even touched him. Peter could have told stories about the transfiguration. I've not only seen Jesus in his human expression, his, his incarnation, but I've seen him in his glory. Peter could have said that. He said, I've seen both of those. I've seen them. He could say, yeah, I, I saw him once walking on the water. And he told me to come to him, and I did, for a few steps. I was looking in his face. Actually, I started to sink, and I looked at him and said, Jesus, save me. I've seen him. I've seen Jesus fishing on two different occasions. I was doing the fishing, I thought. <laughs> Jesus is the one that brought in the great catch twice. I've seen Jesus in his face as it looked at me right after I denied knowing him in a courtyard. Yeah, I've seen Jesus. I've seen the resurrected Jesus. I saw the resurrected Jesus go into the sky and disappear in his ascension. I've seen him. But that Peter's telling his readers then and now, listen, I have no advantage over you. Because you see one with the eye of faith. It's like what Jesus said to Thomas after he rose from the dead, after Jesus rose from the dead, John 20, 29. Jesus said to Thomas, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believed. But there's something about trials. That even though you can't see Jesus, as they lash out against you, as our Lord said they would do, you remember our Lord's words as you suffer and realize, indeed, he's there with you, even though you can't see him. And you might not have been looking had you not been hurting. Romans 8.18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be revealed the glory that's going to be revealed in us. That leads us to our final sticky note. 
Trials make you homesick, don't they? They make you homesick. He says here in verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, there's that third mention, the salvation of your souls. Talking about that day, not just our souls, but our whole person. That's the idea in heaven. Our resurrected body, our spirits being with the Lord, everything coming together after this life. You just get a little homesick for that. Keeps you from getting comfortable down here. So, you say you're a Christian. You say you have eternal life that you want to tell other people about. You say you're pretty serious about it. Do you understand that the salvation you have wasn't your idea? It was initiated by God himself. That salvation that you have isn't guarded by you and your perfect performance. It's guarded by God himself. And you say, had I not gone through suffering, especially suffering at the closest level, even in the family, because I identify, I'm serious about Jesus Christ and his word, it wasn't until I hurt that I could actually see him. That's because God himself proves your salvation. It's quite a salvation. And it's tethered to our faithful Savior sent by our loving Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have reason again to sing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great salvation that you initiated, you protect right up to this very moment and for all eternity. But you want us to see how true and steadfast it is. So we are, temp- we are tested. We are persecuted. Way beyond just having a bad day. People actually posture and strategize against us because we live under the lordship of Jesus. It's in those times you prove to us how strong that faith is that you've gifted to us. Lord, these readers are going to need these opening paragraphs in the next four chapters that Peter has for us because the suffering's here. But as we press through this Passion Week, as we anticipate communion and next Lord's Day celebration on Easter, I pray, Lord, that we'll remember that this has everything to do with the resurrection. And the resurrection has everything to do with how secure our salvation is from a saving God. And if anyone under the sound of my voice online or here in person has not accepted your free gift of eternal life, I pray today that you would open their hearts to believe the gospel, that you died and you were buried and you rose again. May you open their heart to to confess their sin and repent and turn and come to you and to live in the freedom, under the freedom of your kingship. Would you do that? In other words, give them your new birth. And if they need help talking with someone about this, I pray that they'll come talk to me, Pastor Michael, anyone they've seen on stage here, and we will help. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.